It's hard to feel free when the world is crashing down around us and we're shut up in our homes practicing social distancing. But you don't have to feel trapped. You can write your way to freedom. Welcome to the Right Away Podcast. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Kane, and I'm recording this July 7th, 2020. So, have I done in the last week? Well, I published um, a romance book with my co-writer, and it went sub-200 in the Amazon store, which is wonderful. Um, We also put up our first pre-order in surprisingly a year. We were at a point where we were doing pre-orders with every book, but then between health issues and family issues, we stopped, and I was shocked to see it was a full year. I'm a huge fan of pre-orders. I like knowing exactly when things are going to go out. I've also had really good luck with them with Frank in the Amazon store. The books that we've done in our popular series with pre-order have gone below 100 in the Amazon store. And the same books in the same world, or not the same books, the books in the same world where we haven't done pre-orders haven't gone that low they've stayed maybe more in like the two or three hundred range for a little bit longer um and that's just an interesting piece of information the sales are virtually the same every book um, and that really is what matters to me uh so this week i want to talk about becca symes write better faster 1.0 class which i took in may A lot of people are familiar with it. Um, It's become really popular in this last year, but if you're not, what it is, is it's basically a class on personal productivity. Um, And what makes it different from reading a book on productivity uh, is that Becca is a Clifton Strengths certified coach, and she uses that training and a combination of personality tests to help students pick apart their personal productivity makeup. She does personal coaching, but the Write Better Faster course is a series of lessons that help you understand how the elements of the personality test results, um, how they interact in different realms. So you start by taking three different tests, and for my session, it was a form of Myers-Briggs, a form of the DISC, the DISC, test and the Clifton Strengths profile. And then she starts digging into an overview of those results and what they mean generally, and then specific realms and topics that writers deal with and how their results influence that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into detail about my personal results and what I've learned about me and how I work. Um, I find specific accounts of Uh, these kinds of classes or experiences super interesting for one Um, but it also helps me decide when I'm trying to figure out if a class works just to hear how how, um, other people's experiences went in detail. Some of the topics that Becca goes over once you've got a general handle on your personality profile um, are goals time management, energy management, your environment, story creation, the process of writing, editing, and habits. 
She starts the class out by asking the students to identify what their essential pain is. Like, what's the thing that either keeps them from writing or is making writing feel difficult or whatever is just the thing that keeps bothering them. Um, And when I started the class, April had been my least stressful and most productive month in I don't know a year two years and so I was just like well I'm just gonna try and maximize my ability but then May took a horrible just downward turn emotionally and I only wrote a third of what I'd written the previous month and I was kind of flailing but I couldn't pinpoint a essential pain but we did get some really good things out of our one-on-one. But what I'm going to do now is go over the personal profiles um, and then the Clifton strengths. And in between, I'll talk about kind of the things I learned throughout the class and also um, in the one-on-one. So the first test was the DISC, D-I-S-C, D-I-S-C, and, or DISC. Um, and that stands for Drive, Influence, And when I took this in college, um, S stood for steadiness and C for consciousness, Um, but Becca just defines them as stability and compliance. The way the DISC works, you don't have a balance between the different traits. It's not that you're, if you're high in D, that means you're going to be low in I. The way that the Myers-Briggs, if you're high in I, you're going to be low in E. It's... Each one is its own kind of continuum, so you could be middle in all of them. You could be really high in one and super low in three. I was really high in S, steadiness, in C, compliance, middling in drive, and low in influence, which surprised me because when I took it in college, I was extremely high drive and influence and extremely low steadiness and compliance. Honestly, I think what that has to do is a lot of personal healing on my half. I came from a pretty tumultuous childhood. Um, So steadiness was not a thing I really understood at all. And chaos was my life. And um, compliance, I I did not feel very compliant, didn't like being compliant. Um, And what Becca defines as compliance is more that you care about standards and you hate when details are wrong. And I think that when I was younger, um, the rebelliousness of just figuring myself out put that on a really low level. Um, and now I really, really enjoy being compliant. <laughs> I, I like knowing what the expectations are. I like knowing what the rules are. I don't necessarily have to meet them if I don't agree with them, but I like knowing what they are. And often I'll choose to meet it in some fashion. Anyways, my highest was stability. And this was something we actually talked about quite a bit in my one-on-one because, um, because my divorce has been honestly my essential pain point in the last, you know, six months this year. And one of the things that uh, was in the lesson on what the different pieces of this personality test meant was this. There's something negative for all people in unstable environments. It's just that stability is particularly impacted by it, no matter what. 
and other people can often power through with much less of an issue. And I find that 100% true for me. And something Becca said in the one-on-one was that for high stability people, divorce is often worse than death. And again, 100% agree with that. I accept death pretty calmly. Like, yes, it saddens me. There are emotions, but it doesn't stop me from working. I'm able to move forward. I'm able to do my life, whatever that currently entails. Um, But the instability of the ending or expiration of this relationship is extremely disconcerting and upsetting and has caused me the most problems in approaching my work in a steady manner. So on the Myers-Briggs, oh, and this is something I found really interesting and not really heard anybody describe these before, but the DISC test is... She defines it as what motivates you. So stability motivates me. Knowing what the standards are motivates me. Um, And meeting them uh, or exceeding them. Overachievers. Um, But the Myers-Briggs test is how you process information. So what the letters are. Most people are going to be familiar with this, but I'm going to go over kind of Becca's interpretation of them. So introvert, extrovert. Um, I versus E, the introvert processes through thoughts while the extrovert processes through words. So a lot of times this will mean that the extrovert has to speak their thoughts externally to process them, whether it is to someone or just to the air, depending on the level of extrovert or personality or whatever. And I'm a hard, hard I. I always have been. Every version of this test I've ever taken, hard introvert. The next one is S versus N, sensing versus intuitive. And I've always kind of balanced in the middle on this one, but on every test except for this one, I have been just over the edge into intuitive, which I find interesting, but I do feel I'm more of a 50-50 on that. Sensing likes to process the concrete, likes details. If you ask them to describe a cup, they're gonna tell you what it looks like. They're gonna tell you its abilities. Um, that it holds, you know, water, probably about this much, um, that it can, whether it can hold hot or cold water and intuitive is more abstract, big picture. They might describe the cup as, you know, a tool for carrying things. If it's styrofoam, you know, like, you know, how it affects the, the environment when it is thrown away, how, you know, um, kind of where the cup sits in the picture of the world. <laughs> um, and I, th- I honestly do think that I, that I sit more on the sensing a lot of the times. So I like the concrete, I like the details, but I like that I've got my foot enough into the intuitive and the big picture that I am not only looking at like the details. Like I don't miss the forest for the trees all the time, sometimes. A lot of times, but I like being in the middle on that. It makes me happy. You should feel happy about your personality. So the next is feeling versus thinking. This is another one where I've been 50-50. And this one I've tested as both at different points in time. So feeling process, 
processes and, and prioritizes subjective things, often emotions, feelings, while thinking processes objectively. And the way I think about this is if a feeling person and a thinking person are planning a vacation, a feeling person is going to be like, oh, I want to go to Italy because it's so romantic and I just, just like that feeling of, you know, old world and adventurousness. And they'll talk a lot about how the vacation will make them feel and why they want to go into that place. A thinking person will say, okay, here's my budget. Here's what I'm able to afford. Here are the destinations that I can afford. Here are the th- kinds of things that I want to do. And these locations have those kinds of things. And they'll kind of do a pros cons list and narrow it down. And I'm in the middle. I'll do both. One thing I think I've seen a pattern of though, is that when I am more depressed, I fall back on thinking versus feeling because I don't trust my emotions. And when I'm in a more centered, healthy and stable place, I will lean more on that feeling. But again, I am a pretty middle person here. And then the last one is J versus P judging versus perceiving. And this one, no questions, hard J, every test I've ever taken. And so judging doesn't mean judgy. Um, It means that you like to process the data by controlling it, by making plans. Um, And perceiving means that you like to process, you like to respond to the data and um, you respond well to pressure uh, deadlines. So the way I think of this is judging likes to know the information before deciding anything, while perceiving says, let's take a step forward and we'll respond as the data comes in. And yeah, I'm a hard J, I like to plan. I don't necessarily need to plan every, I actually hate planning every step of the way, but I like to have a pretty good idea of what is going to happen for whatever's coming forward, whether it's travel, whether it's getting ready to publish a book. And then I like to plan things out. I I think this is a a large reason that I love pre-orders. I don't need that deadline to motivate me to get it done, but I like once it's done, actually, I tend to create my pre-orders after the book is done. I like to get the book done and then I'll set a pre-order up because that means I can automate every step of the way. I can put on my calendar, here are the Facebook posts I'm going to make if I'm doing that. I write them out ahead of time. If I can schedule them, I do. I schedule my emails ahead of time. Everything is just set up without pressure and then it goes and does its thing and doesn't require my input. I think a perceiving person, I think that would drive them crazy. Um, One thing I did want to note for anyone who is going to take the class after listening to this, Becca noted in ours that she's not going to use these two profiles in the future. She's going to be moving to the Enneagram and the big five in her next sessions, which of course I took because I'm a personality profile junkie. I have taken every personality profile test I have come across except the stupid like you know, social media ones. Um, one of my favorites is the, I think it's Sally Hogshead, How Do You Fascinate? And that one is about how to best market yourself. Mine's the secret weapon. Um, going by names, and I love that. So, do, do, do. 
Now the Clifton Strengths. So what are the Clifton Strengths? Clifton Strengths is a profile test that is kind of about how more how you work in teams. It was originally created as a business tool and Becca's applied it um, very uniquely and specifically to writers. And what she said about it in one of her YouTube videos was um, what's useful about doing this test and knowing your traits or themes as they call them is when you understand the trait itself, you have more control over the behavior and then you get better faster. So that's the baseline for her whole class, that idea. My top five, which are the ones that you get for free for doing the class. And then I paid for the full 34. But my top five are learner, input, relator, intellection, and individualization. And my next five, which, so your 10 are your, kind of your top wheelhouse. Your top five are really how you um, can mo first most maximize by focusing on those. And then your next five are, these are all things you're pretty good at. After that, it's kind of like, well, these are things you're not, you don't prioritize. And that's fine. You don't have to prioritize everything. But my next five, six through 10, are achiever, consistency, activator, maximizer, and arranger. And I'm going to go through what those mean in general and what they mean to me. So learner, pretty self-explanatory. You love, the keywords are knowledge and competency. Um, you love learning for the sake of learning, not really focused on the outcome necessarily. You just like to know. And the way I've been fulfilling that for the past year is honestly only podcasts and the author success mastermind, a few books, but when I looked back and realized that I was actually surprised because I've always defined myself as a learner. I would love to go back to university and study just for fun. I love that environment. I loved being at school and I actually have plans to go back to school just because I can at some point when I can just pay for it out of pocket. Not in the U.S. That's not happening. But I hadn't been doing a lot of learning outside of my little realm. And I think a lot of that's because I've been in burnout. I've been overloaded. But I used to just lose myself in, you know, the Wikipedia rabbit hole or down just random trains of thoughts, something would spark my interest and I'd just go. And I haven't done that in a really long time. And I haven't taken classes either. And I love classes. So I have prioritized taking more classes because I know that that fills my well. Like that's not a, that's not a drain on my energy. That fills me up. Knowing that I have started putting specific classes into my schedule and learning things outside of the book world because I know that I just love learning and it honestly doesn't matter what it is as long as I'm learning something new. My second kind of ties in the learner a bit. Um, I think it ties together really well is input, which is information collection. Though some people collect people and some people collect hoarder kind of things, but basically you collect and I have always been that person like, Oh, did you read that article? Have you seen that thing? Oh, this reminds me of, I just have all these odd bits of often worthless, but often useful 
information just stacked away in my head somewhere. I believe when I, I remember in Becca's podcast or YouTube about the input type, um, Sherlock is one that is you can think of as an example with his mind palace, like storing all this useful information away. She said a lot of uh, input people have a way that they organize their information. And if they don't, they sometimes get really lost. And I, I, I resonate with that. Um, number three is relator. The keyword for this I found is tribe. One of the interesting things that I learned about this one is that it doesn't mean that you're really good at just relating to anyone, anyone and everyone. That's not me. It means that you are good at building relationships. You're good at building trust, but that relators have kind of this idea of concentric circles and there are like walls that you have to get over to get closer to a relator. So a relator might have, you know, very few close friends and then a slightly smaller circle of friends and then a larger circle of acquaintances and a relator is very conscious of their relationship to individuals and the closer you get to a relator the more access you have to them the more themselves they are going to be with you and you can almost see at least a relator in their mind can see like when someone crosses over from acquaintance to friend. And I a hundred percent find that true. And it was one of those things where it's interesting to see like, Oh yeah, people, other people don't necessarily work this way. Um, a lot of my extrovert friends and relator is not necessarily a introvert versus extrovert trait, but a lot of my extrovert friends that I know don't process friendship the same way. They'll call everyone their friend, even if they just met them two minutes ago. That does not compute for me. Um, how I think it relates really well with all of my traits, learner input and election of individualization and some of the other ones, is that it also makes me really interested in, in teaching. So input, people like to share their knowledge. Um, learners like to have the knowledge and be useful, be able to have competency, be able to do things. And the relator likes to like have people um, that they can interact really closely with. So all that builds into, um, kind of explains why I've so often in my life fallen into a teaching role, whether it was when I was a software developer and they often put me in charge of bringing newbies up to scale or when I lived in Nashville and I stepped into leading writing groups there, um, or just in my individual relationships with friends and writers who are starting out, I have had to actually at times be very careful about when I do step in because I'm so ready to help. And as my, my six through 10 traits will show, I'm also like ready to jump and do that when people tell me that they're interested in something, I assume that they're ready to jump and do like I would be, and so I'm ready to jump and help, but they're often not actually at that stage. So, number four, intellection. 
this one, the keyword I found was time to think. And Becca said this was the most common trait among all of her coaching clients. And I don't, I suspect that that may be a writer trait, but I don't know. Um, intellectual people are often introspective. They like to process things. Um, you'll get your best answers from them two or three days after you ask a question. You'll often see them lost in thought. Um, and one comment she made in our one-on-one that they often need lots of sleep. So I'm using that to justify my need uh, for some really solid sleep because I've had to defend that before in my life. One of the interesting things I found with this is that it is kind of in opposition to the activator. Like you could think of them as kind of the yin and the yang. Um, some traits have that, which I also have, but in my um, lower five. Um, number five, individualization. Um, the keyword I found for this was customization. So this doesn't necessarily mean that you're the lone wolf. Um, Though I would be curious to see how often that kind of approach coincides with individualization. But what an individualization theme person does is they see the differences between people, um, in, including yourself. You see how you're different from other people. They're intrigued by the unique qualities of people and they make people feel safe enough to be vulnerable. And I see this has a lot of value both as a teacher, both as a collaborator when you're writing co-works and for creating characters as you are writing. So let me find, there we go. Number six, Achiever. This was another one that Beck and I talked about a bit. Um, the keyword for this one is accomplishment. Achievers are driven by a big goal and that will fuel them and they will work crazy hard, possibly overwork and very prone to burnout. And if they don't have a big goal, they tend to flail and not really know where to put their energy. So the reason we talked about this one a bit for me is that I didn't realize that I had an invisible goal when I was first starting out. My goal was to make a full-time income as only a writer, nothing else. And apparently the requirements for meeting that goal, my invisible goal that I didn't know I had, were to have three five-figure months in a row, which I managed 2019. Yes, 2019. I had three um, five-figure months in a row. And then it was kind of like this Xbox achievement had popped up and then ding, 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 you got that. And this desire to be only a full-time author just went away. I'm like, oh, I got that. I done that. Good. Good job, me. And... So now that that achievement has been unlocked, I have floated a bit, not having a specific achievement that I'm really pushing for. And I don't like consciously making income my 
my focus point, that's a really unhealthy place for me to be. It's probably a really unhealthy place for most people to be. But there's a difference between I need money to survive, which is where I started this whole process. I was broken living with my parents with my son, husband, and two dogs. And no job. And now to knowing fairly consistently what my income is going to be month to month. I don't have that hardcore drive to earn more, more, more. I mean, I absolutely want to learn, earn more, but my goals are less concrete now. And so it makes sense that I've been having a really hard time prioritizing and figuring out how to push forward. So actually last week, And the week before, a lot of the work I did was just kind of sitting around and brainstorming about what were my priorities in life and what were the things I wanted to put the most energy toward. And so I'm still wrestling with that a little bit, but that was really helpful. Um, And knowing that I'm an achiever pushed me to have that review. So number seven, consistency which I feel connects really well with my need for stability. But the keyword for this one was fairness. And I read up on this one a bit. um, And most of the information I found was within teams. And I find that this is kind of the yin-yang to individualization. um, Is that this one sees the need to treat all people fairly. So while individualization sees the need to treat people as individual consistency means we also have to treat everybody kind of the same um nice little war there but what consistency is really happy with is creating routines rules and procedures for everyone to kind of fall in the same realm and i think it's completely possible to have the two working in a beautiful union um and right now i'm thinking more of like a a team effort um i really haven't thought about what it means as me sitting working by myself but i can see like a consistent high consistency person creating an environment where everyone is held to the same standards but in individualization being able to put people where their strengths will um, be best used so um number six eight um activator this one i think is the one that keeps me from being too slow because over in my top five we have learner input relator intellectual intellection individualization um and that's a lot of sitting thinking and gathering information Activator is what I what I think keeps me moving forward. Activator and achiever. The activator is the jump starter. They are very impatient to start. They are really good at starting projects, getting things going. Uh, that is definitely one of my traits. I'm kind of terrible at finishing projects. I have trained myself to finish books, which is wonderful. Um, but I'm really good at starting projects. And when I was in software development and thought I'd be there for a long time, like I really just wanted the job where I jumped in, started projects, got them to a good place and handed them off. Like that was the project. That was the kind of role I wanted. And I never got to that point. 
Um, never really pursued that, but I'm really glad that I am a full-time writer now. Way happier. My number nine is Maximizer. The keyword for this is upgrade. Um, maximizers see potential. They have high standards and they're a perfectionist. Um, and it's really interesting to see how all of these traits work together and balance. So like my maximizer, again, could slow me down because perfectionism and high standards, all of which I have for myself. Um, but my activator and my achiever are like, well, you got to keep things moving. Like don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, and in the teaching realm, this is, I think this is such a good teacher quality because you see potential. You see where people can go. You can see where projects can go as an individual. And you know how far you can go. You know there's just so much possibility and you can see it. Um, this is also a really good entrepreneur trait. I didn't realize that not everyone sees basically everything they do as a possible business venture. Um, but everything from gardening to my gluten-free cooking, I see how all of these could be turned into businesses. And I have actually trained myself to not pursue them because I used to be that person who emphasized my activator. I would jumpstart everything. I would start a million projects, start a million plans, but then never finish. Um, and so I focus hardcore. I think that's one of the reasons I focused hardcore on writing for so long. It's like, get it up, get it going, get it good. Um, before I, you know, sideways off into a new project, it might be tangential. It might be something completely different. Um, but I put all of my energy forward on one path and I think that's been really beneficial, but my maximizer sees the potential in everything I do. And then my number 10 is arranger, keyword best configuration. So the arranger likes to figure out what the best process is. Um, they're planners, organized, flexible, but they're also always changing plans because nothing's ever like perfect. Nothing's ever good enough. So they're like, okay, this worked for a while, but like, how could we make it even better? So the arranger and maximizer kind of go hand in hand. Um, and I don't, I think it was in the last podcast, I had just said, like, I have to come to terms with the fact that no process is going to be good forever. <laughs> and it turns out that my personality wouldn't let me keep a process the same, even if it was pretty okay. Um, so that's good. That is meant to be. <laughs> um, one note I have on one of the traits that is not high is um, that I have low empathy. And this doesn't mean that I'm not empathic. It doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to uh, be to empathize. But one of the things that Becca said about this, when we were talking about therapy and, and um, that it was very good to do while you're going through a divorce, um, is that low empathy-themed people will often bottle their emotions because they they don't need to deal with them in the moment. Um, their personality does not prioritize them. But then they get to a point where they just kind of all come out at once. That has been me for a really long time, basically since being a teenager. 
And so I really enjoyed um, digging into all of this. I'm going to continue to dig into this myself. I will probably do um, more coaching sessions with Becca outside of the classes as I hit new essential pain points or just have quest- enough questions that I feel I can justify it. Um, there's that judging, planning part of me. Um, I really do recommend the class if you feel like you don't understand why you're having a problem or even if you understand why you're having a problem and don't know how to deal with it. One of the things that I love most about Becca and she has a whole book on this is that she doesn't expect and doesn't want anyone else to expect them to hold themselves to any kind of standard that doesn't fit them. And I know that I talked about this in my last podcast with things that aren't the right way for you. And Becca calls it question the premise. If somebody says you have to rapid release, you have to be exclusive on Kindle, you have to write every day, question the premise. And her book on that is Dear Writer, You Need to Quit. I highly recommend it. I also recommend this class. Um, I will probably take more of her classes. I believe there's a Write Better Faster 2.0, and there's also a Strengths for Writers course. I haven't looked at them closely, but because I really enjoy Becca's approach and I enjoyed this class, I suspect that I will take one or both of them at some point. I hope this is really useful to anyone who is considering taking the class. And if you're interested in hearing more of my thoughts about different classes, let me know. I'm a pretty big fan of Holly Lyle. I've taken quite a few of her classes. I've taken some of Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush's classes, both in person and um, online. And honestly, I won't talk about anything that I don't think is helpful. I'll only talk about the positives um, because I only want to point people towards things that are good. I will talk about negatives to a class that I got more net positive out of, um, but if I got something that I hated, I'm not going to talk about it. I just don't find that a worthwhile expenditure of my time. So (laughs) thanks for joining me today. If this has helped you at all, um, please leave me a comment. If you've taken the class, leave me a comment. Tell me what you got out of the Write Better Faster class. And If you want to throw some money my way, help support um, the podcast, the transcriptions, you can go to www.ko-fi.com slash Chris Kane. And I will have all the notes to everything I've referenced in the show notes. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you next week.